to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series is produced with the general public, patients, and healthcare professionals in mind. We are thrilled to welcome Dr. David Fleischer, who is an Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Children's Hospital of Colorado and the University of Colorado School of Medicine, where he serves as the Associate Section Head and Director of the Allergy and Immunology Center. Dr. Fleischer is the current Chair of the Adverse Reactions to Foods Committee of the Academy and is an accomplished researcher with over 70 peer-reviewed publications. Dr. Fleischer's research interests focus on food allergies and improving our understanding of diagnostic and therapeutic approaches to these conditions. Dr. Fleischer, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today and welcome to the show. Thank you, David. Thank you for that very kind introduction. Well, let's get into it. So today we're yes. going to talk about food allergy and food allergen immunotherapy. And we have a wide audience listening who come from all different backgrounds. So can you start just by defining what a food allergy is to help set the stage for our conversation? Sure. So any reaction to a food we kind of say is an, an adverse uh, food reaction. Within those adverse food reactions, if it involves the immune system, so if it's immune-mediated, then we uh, it can be possibly a food allergy. Um, when you talk about food allergy, then breaking those, that down, it can be what we call IgE-mediated versus non-IgE-mediated, where the IgE antibodies are the ones that can cause potentially cause uh, severe reactions such as anaphylaxis. Um, symptoms can be anything from hives, swelling, or angioedema, difficulty breathing, um, and then there's typical foods that cause those. And then the non-IgE-mediated reactions can be severe as well. In some cases, what we call food protein-induced enterocolitis syndrome, where you can get severe diarrhea and vomiting and become dehydrated, but some of the other non-IgE-mediated reactions, they're usually not life-threatening as compared to IgE-mediated reaction. I think another point is is that many people think they have food allergies when, in fact, the, um, the number that truly have food allergies diagnosed are much less. So there's other reactions to foods like, for example, uh, intolerances. Um, the classic one is lactose intolerance, where you don't have the sugar to break down, or the enzyme to break down the sugar uh, in in dairy products. Um, so therefore, you can get some gas and bloating and diarrhea, but you're not allergic to the protein, the dairy proteins that are in that. Whereas, um, so you could take a lactate milk that has the lactose removed from it, but it still has the milk protein in it uh, and do fine. Whereas if you gave for example, the lactate milk to a cow's milk allergic Ig or non-Ig, they could have a reaction to that because there's still the protein that's in there. So it sounds like there's some subtle nuances in some of the wording that we use here. Um, and for the purposes of today's conversation, just so our listeners are aware, we're really going to be talking about IgE-mediated food allergy reactions. Now, you mentioned before um, about um, people thinking they may have food allergies when they don't. Can you tell us a 
approximately how many people have food allergies or what percentage of the population and what are the most common causes? Sure. I think the, just to preface the what we think of the prevalence in the United States, it's a lot of the most of the prevalent studies have been based on um, not food challenge based to actually definitively prove you have food allergies. So they're often based on telephone uh, questionnaires. So true prevalence based on food challenges is done in other countries such as Australia haven't been done in the U.S. So these are our best estimates based on on these kind of surrogates for those things. Um, Usually, I think the percent now is somewhere close to 8 to 10 percent of children have food allergy. It's probably about a half that have in the adult world have uh, food allergy. At least we're talking again IgE mated allergy. Um, there was actually just a paper that came out from uh, Northwestern with Dr. Gupta looking at adult uh, questionnaires. I think over 40,000 uh, responses in, in there. The prevalence was even higher, about 10 percent. So about 20-something million having it. So I think, again, there's probably some range of true IG allergy within there where we think about 15 million people probably have it based on some studies. And so that could be one in 13 children could have it within that range. So the most common food allergens, when we're talking IG again, are milk, egg, and peanut are probably the, the big three now. Uh, there are other ones such as soy and wheat, tree nuts, fish and shellfish that are also very common, but not as common as probably milk, egg, and peanut, especially in the youngest children. In adults, the most common ones are going to be the ones that aren't, that aren't usually outgrown, which will be the peanuts, tree nuts, fish, and shellfish. Now, you and I both see patients every day that either feel they have a food allergy or or misdiagnosed with having a food allergy when they don't actually have one. So can you walk us through our approach to how we currently diagnose food allergies? Sure. The most important thing, as it is likely with any kind of diagnosis we're trying to make, is the clinical history. So when you're talking about IgE-mediated allergy, you need to have a clinical history that's consistent with what we would call an IgE-mediated uh, reaction or process. So um, getting that clinical history clearly from a family or a patient is going to be key. So uh, the onset of when the symptoms happen, so usually with IgE-mediated reactions, those ha symptoms happen usually within the first few minutes to 30 minutes, but can happen up to two hours after ingesting the food. And then um, the typical symptoms that are associated with IgE-mediated reactions, so hives or urticaria, uh, swelling, what we call angioedema, uh, any kind of respiratory, congestion, runny nose, coughing, wheezing, vomiting. But again, the timing needs to be typical of that. Even though I mentioned kind of the top eight food allergens, really any food could potentially cause an IgE-mediated reaction. Again, it's getting that good clinical history of of the, the basically the symptoms and when things happened around that reaction. Oftentimes, we'll also ask, you know, have you eaten that food again since then? Um, because sometimes kids, especially when they get viral infections, can have hives and they have eaten the food, which and within two hours may have been what we think is a major allergen had a reaction, but if they've eaten it again, then it's probably already it many times before. It may not be the case. If you have a history that's that's you know clinically relevant, possibly to an IgE-mediated reaction, then we as allergists have testing that we can do to confirm that. Um, so you have skin tests um, that we do. There are blood tests we can also do that can be done by other providers as well. But again, I think the key point is you don't want to be doing a broad range of tests uh, without a good clinical history of what food or foods you've identified as possibly causing that reaction. 
So in other words, if somebody's eating a food and they're not having those immediate onset reproducible symptoms, is there really any reason to test for IgE food allergy in most of those patients? No, I, I think that's where we get into trouble and have gotten in trouble in the past. If uh, you're looking at, for uh, example, let's say there are times where we see patients that come to us with abdominal pain uh, after they eat, um, to go screening for those things and do a panel of, of skin tests or blood tests could get you some positive results, but without a good clinical history, taking those foods out is not recommended, and that's where if we someone comes to us and have had positive tests, we'll often go back through the history or we'll do and or do testing or more likely do a food challenge where that's the definitive test of whether they really are allergic to that food or not under observation um, to see if they don't react. So. Great. Now, you know, we know that a food allergy diagnosis, it's really a big deal because it it's a life-changing diagnosis. Can you describe for our listeners what a typical day is like for somebody with food allergies and, and some of the challenges involved with avoiding ingestion? Sure. I, I think, you know, food allergy, and you and I both have done a lot of research in this, I think is one of the hardest allergic diseases to, to manage. Um, I think myself growing up with asthma and seasonal allergies and uh, and these days my both my kids have seasonal allergies and allergy shots and have asthma um i'll put it try to put it in perspective from where i see it um so um, my son my youngest son has allergy shots and he had an, an anaphylactic reaction about two years ago i still remember that feeling that i had in my gut when i got that phone call that he had a reaction um because uh I've treated thousands of patients for anaphylaxis and knowing it was my son having that, put yourself, try to put yourself in the shoes of someone, a parent uh, or a patient that has food allergy, that constant fear of having anaphylaxis almost 24 hours a day, except for maybe the child or patient sleeping where they're not eating something within two or three hours. I don't think we can really understand that until we put ourselves in the in the shoes of those patients and families. The quality of life of patients that have food allergy uh, can be quite low. Um, having to read labels, uh, constantly worrying about again reactions. There's bullying that can happen uh, with uh, these children, which we know is is more common uh, than we thought based on on studies that have been done. But just that you know, another thing is when you go to a restaurant now more you get asked more about does your you have any food allergies, but constantly not being able to consider going out for to restaurants because of worry, going to uh, family's houses, sleepovers. There's just a lot of things you have to really think about um, as a patient um, with food allergy to prepare yourself to not have an accidental ingestion, again, such as reading labels, um, having epinephrine available all the time, antihistamines. Um, so it's, it really has a huge impact on the quality of life, whereas Putting it back into perspective with asthma and, and seasonal allergies, most of those things are pretty easy if you take your medications, and medications don't take a lot of time to take with those diseases, uh, you'll be fine. But again, it's that constant fear of having an accidental exposure that could cause a, a life-threatening reaction, I think, that really makes it difficult for uh, patients and families uh, and other relatives of those patients and friends that have food allergies. I think you did a great job of really describing quite well of how this encompasses, you know, every aspect of their life. Um, now, is there any hope? Do people ever outgrow their food allergies on their own or develop tolerance over time? It depends on the on the food allergen. So, um, previous studies looking at milk and egg, you know, 
maybe 20 years ago would say that most outgrew it by five years uh, of age or so. But then some more data came out um, out of Senator Johns Hopkins saying, you know, looking at milk and egg, those many patients may not have outgrown it until they're closer to 10 or 12 years of age. Again, you have to look at the different studies in the base of the population that was referred to, say, a tertiary center, which maybe have more severe allergies. But I'd say, in general, most patients outgrow milk and egg. The age depends on, on certain factors. Um, but there are certainly patients with milk and egg allergy that go into adulthood with that. But I'd say the majority do outgrow it by what year, I think, can be debated. Only about 20 to 25% of patients outgrow peanut allergy. So the vast majority go on to it in adulthood. And about 10% outgrow tree nut allergies. Uh, so again, the vast majority go into adulthood with those. Fish and shellfish, we don't have a very good natural history data with, but again, most go into adulthood with those allergies. Uh, soy and wheat are probably the least of those uh, top eight allergens, um, and usually those are outgrown, um, but we certainly have patients, I'm sure you and I, that have wheat allergy that's IG mediated that still have it uh, into their teenage and adult years. I haven't really seen soy go into adulthood uh, per se, but there are some patients that will outgrow it for sure, um, and there's different things that we can maybe help accelerate that outgrowing. For example, with milk and egg, if they can tolerate baked milk and baked egg, that may accelerate them outgrowing it sooner. Um, so again, it depends on the food um, primarily. Yeah, I, I've heard you say a few times now already in our conversation about really how individualized um, this diagnosis is based upon the history and the food and things along those lines. Um, let's go back to something you mentioned just before, because there's a lot of people listening that may not understand how severe a food allergy reaction can be, or those who have food allergies may not understand what to look for. So can you describe for us what a severe reaction would look like for somebody with a food allergy, and also some indications of when epinephrine should be used? Sure. So when you're talking about a severe reaction, I think you're most likely talking about anaphylaxis, which is, again, a serious allergic reaction that's usually very quick in onset and unfortunately can can lead to death. Um, the key treatment for anaphylaxis is, is prompt use of epinephrine. And when we talk about with our patients going over action plans and, and when to use epinephrine, there are some general things. Again, I think it depends on provider may be different, patient may be different, what you may say. But for example, if um, you have just a few hives or a localized, say, lip swelling or eye swelling, most would say epinephrine is not needed. If you have generalized hives that break out suddenly, to me that is showing a, a systemic reaction. So even if there's no other symptom, I would consider using epinephrine. Any respiratory, especially lower respiratory, I mean symptoms such as coughing or wheezing is epinephrine. Uh, patients that vomit more than once or even, I'd say, have abdominal pain, vomit, and continue to have severe abdominal pain, epinephrine will often use there's some questions about, you know, if you have two organ systems, then some plans will say use epinephrine. I think the the key point that I try to tell parents and patients is if you think your child or you think you need epinephrine, give it. Don't wait to talk to a medical provider uh, or someone. If you think you need it, give it. Um, there are really uh, only a few circumstances where you can say that um, it's dangerous to give epinephrine. So often we'll say to parents, it's better to give it than not to give it, honestly. Um, so 
again, there are some nuances there with different patients and things. But I, again, I think when we talk about poor outcomes and fatalities, there often is a role of epinephrine either not being available, um, they don't have it on them, or it wasn't used quickly enough. Um, so I think epinephrine really is important and carrying epinephrine is very important, not just an antihistamine because antihistamines may be able to be used for some uh, minor symptoms, but you can't wait for antihistamines to work if you're having anaphylaxis. So, uh, you know, you, you really hammered home the importance of using epinephrine if you feel that you need it, um, or even for those who aren't sure. Can you just tell us, you know, what is epinephrine and why do we use it as the first-line treatment for anaphylaxis? So epinephrine is simply a more common term could be adrenaline. It's just the, the onset of epinephrine is, is within seconds to two minutes. Um, I think when, as you've probably seen in some of the studies we're doing, we'll talk about later, using immunotherapy, most of those patients have reactions because we know they're allergic and we're doing a challenge to see how much they can tolerate. When you see the parents and the patients that use the epinephrine, oftentimes they'll say they're surprised how quickly it worked and it really didn't hurt that bad to use it. And we feel much more comfortable now, even the patients uh, giving themselves epinephrine sometimes in these studies is pretty impressive to see, but it rapidly helps reverse some of the, the symptoms and signs that you'll see of, of anaphylaxis. The onset, again, is very quick, but the the half-life, meaning how quickly it goes away, can be quite quick as well. So it's important if you've used epinephrine to seek medical care to make sure uh, that the reaction doesn't come back or there's a later reaction. Um, but I think nature of the medication and the adrenaline, it just it works very quickly and reverses those helps reverse and hopefully stop uh, the release of other mediators and things that can uh, cause anaphylaxis. Now, we t we talked before about the quality of life issues that surround living with a food allergy, and you just did a great job of explaining how severe a food allergy reaction can be. Um, can you talk about some of the social consequences of living with food allergies? Here you're referring to, I mean, just in general, what it's like. I mean, I think, again, Quality of life is so negatively impacted by food allergy. There's not usually a two, three hour period where any of us don't eat anything in their lives again, except when they're sleeping. So um, there's constant, and food is such an integral part of, of what we do to you know survive in social situations. So it's, it can be very difficult for families and patients to go out to uh, say dinner or to any restaurant, uh, Social situations like going to uh, parties and birthday parties, things we take for granted, uh, can be very uh, worrisome just because of possible uh, cross-contamination and, and hidden ingredients. School, uh, just going to school can be difficult because, again, when you're talking about milk and egg and some of these major allergens like soy and wheat, they're ubiquitous in, in food, so um, it's hard to avoid those sometimes. Uh, again, bullying can be something at school that we see. Uh, it's unfortunate, um, but we certainly see that with food allergy as well. Um, but it's 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 not it's not easy, as you know. Just going through our daily routine, if you have to worry about constantly what you uh, possibly eat could cause a reaction. Um, so this is huge impacts on on social situations and quality of life. Now that being said, um, do you find that there is a, a path that people with food allergies can follow so they can successfully navigate these challenges and, and live a happy life? 
I do. I, I think the way I try to put it in perspective is, you know, we want some healthy level of anxiety. We want people to be cautious. We don't want them to be cavalier about things and just, you know, take grand. Well, I haven't had a reaction in this amount of time, so I should be okay. I'm not going to carry my epinephrine because I'm not, I've never had a severe reaction. So I, I think there are ways to do it. And, and part of that is, is education about what things you need to avoid, how to avoid those things. So uh, dietitians play a key role in our center here in education, uh, educating patients and families on what, how to read labels, what things may sound uh, safe, but may actually have hidden, say, dairy and egg in them. More importantly, what things that you need to get in your diet to make up for the things you are avoiding, such as calcium and vitamin D, if you're avoiding um, dairy and things. So I think there, there are ways to do a balanced, effective avoidance, carrying up an effort and going over action plans. I think if there's too much anxiety, and we certainly see that not just from the patients, but from parents and families, then trying to seek out some psychosocial support, which we're fortunate to have at our center and other centers around the country have. Because again, we, we want patients and families to be able to live their lives as normally as they can. Um, again, try to put yourself in the, in the shoes of someone with food allergy, and it's, it's, it's much harder to do uh, than in some other diseases. Now, you mentioned before about some of the more common causes of food allergy, but you know, t can you touch upon why does it seem like every story we read about, whether it's online or social media or in articles, that the focus is really on peanut allergies? Are they, are they more severe compared to other foods, and why do we see this disproportionate focus? I think there's several reasons. I think, you know, when you look at, at peanut allergies, certainly they seem to have more, um, be responsible for more severe reactions, and it is one of those higher-risk food allergens that puts you uh, at risk for a more uh, for a possible fatal reaction. Other things that make you at higher risk are having asthma and poorly controlled asthma as well. Another thing is that peanut allergy, again, is not usually outgrown. So if only 20, 25% outgrow it, you're going to see more and more patients go into adolescents and adults um, and not outgrow it. And then when you look at adolescents and adults, those are higher risk kind of age groups where those teenagers and young adults tend to take more risk-taking behaviors and not just with food allergy, but obviously other things. But those combination of all those factors likely plays a role. The other point is I think the press, unfortunately, does focus a lot on, on peanut allergy. And as you know, when you know younger kids in preschool uh, Milk and egg are much more common to cause reactions in anaphylaxis, and there are deaths that happen from other foods besides peanuts. So I think it's a combination of all those different factors, um, but certainly peanut is one known to have potentially more severe life-threatening reactions. Well, we spent some time talking about the scope of food allergies and uh, the importance of avoidance in treating reactions when they occur. For the, for the last part of our, our discussion today, I'd like to switch gears a little bit. And over the past decade or so, uh, there have been multiple research studies looking at ways to potentially treat food allergies. For our listeners, can you describe these approaches and how they differ from one another? Sure. So you're talking obviously about food immunotherapy, um, which is the basic premise is like allergy shots for environmental allergens. You're exposing uh, patients to the food allergens that they're allergic to in small doses and usually increasing doses depending on the therapy. There are three main types of immunotherapy that have been talked about. 
uh, I've been sorry, I've been researched in the last you know 10, 20 years, like you said. So I'll, I'll talk about each one of them individually a little bit. So uh, the one that's been probably studied the most and used now clinically in private practices is oral immunotherapy. With oral immunotherapy or OIT, you're in obviously eating those uh, foods. You start with usually a very small dose, maybe a half a milligram of protein on a what we call initial escalation day. You usually try to get to about three milligrams. And then every two weeks, you come back to a, an office with a medical provider, should be an allergist, that's overseeing the ingestion of those foods every two weeks. And then usually getting to a maintenance dose um, that can be anywhere from, say, 300 milligrams or about one peanut, if we're putting it in that perspective, to up to gram doses, although most people now are using lower doses uh, to decrease the amount of time it takes to get to a maintenance dose. With oral immunotherapy, because you're ingesting and eating those foods, um, there are more side effects, usually more significant side effects that can be more moderate to severe compared to the other therapies I'll talk about. Um, so anaphylaxis can happen with any of these therapies, but dropout rate from oral immunotherapy is about 15 to 20%, and most commonly due to uh, GI side effects because you can induce what's called an inflammation in the esophagus called eosinophilic esophagitis, possibly. There are also some restrictions on OIT as far as not being able to do physical activity within uh, a three-hour period of taking the dose or not taking that dose within two hours of going to bed. There are also some um, reactions that can happen out of the blue if a patient gets sick with the flu or a vir other viral infection and suddenly have a reaction where they've not tolerated it before. So as far as efficacy, how well it works, because you're doing higher doses, about a peanut a day, for example, you're going to have more what we call efficacy. It's going to work a little better, a little faster. But again, you have to balance that with the side effects and um, the safety of the product compared to some of the other ones. The second one is uh, sublingual immunotherapy, which is what it sounds like. You're putting uh, drops of liquid under the tongue. Those doses are usually maintenance doses of three to five, maybe seven milligrams total, so much less than the OIT doses. Most of the side effects there are going to be uh, in the mouth, so um, most all patients get itching in the mouth, but that usually gets better over time. More severe reactions can happen, but not as common as in OIT. Um, and the dosing, again, is usually every two weeks getting to a maintenance dose, and there's some controversy where that needs to be done in an office or at home, but sublingual hasn't been studied as much commercially with products. The uh, efficacy of it is probably in between the oral immunotherapy uh, and the patch, and it really depends on the age when that started. So uh, two main studies looking at peanut. One was an older population of adolescents and adults. It didn't work as well as the ones that started at, at a younger age, so age may be a factor. The last one is what we call epicutaneous immunotherapy, or um, EPIT, which is, again, what it sounds is a, a company that makes a uh, patch right now that's being investigated for peanut and for milk. Peanuts made it through the farthest into phase three, like the oral immunotherapy uh, company. The product is a fixed dose unlike the other two, so there's no updosing. Uh, the patch is put on, uh, at least in the clinical trials at the center, uh, for three hours, then over the next two weeks, built up to taking it, putting it on for 24 hours a day. The most common side effects 
because it's applied to the skin are going to be skin reactions and most patients get those. Uh, some can be severe, but it's the safety of it seems to be much higher than the sublingual with the OIT because you're not ingesting any kind of food product. However, because it's a fixed dose and it's a much smaller dose, to put it into perspective, uh, it's 250 micrograms for peanut. That's about one one thousandth of a peanut. So, uh, for example, in a three-year study of using the patch every day compared to taking 300 milligrams a day, if you sum up 250 micrograms daily for 24 hours for three years, it's less than just it's less than one peanut. It's less than 300 milligrams of peanut protein total for those three years. Because of the lower dose, it's going to take a little more time to work. So um, you have to balance any of these therapies with your, how quickly you want them to work, what side effects you're willing to uh, to uh, endure, and then the convenience of those therapies um, and having to come into a physician's office for sublingual you know, IT versus the patch where it's a fixed dose. Um, so again, I think there, there are some good options here and the OIT and the peanut patch are the closest to hopefully FDA approval sometime uh, later this year. Um, so we should have those things, uh, some products FDA approved for use soon. That's a wonderful overview and um, thank you for really describing the differences between these approaches and some of the benefits and limitations. Now, at this time when we're speaking, it's early 2019 and you had mentioned that there may be some FDA approval for some of these products, but where do we stand now in regards to the readiness and widespread use of food immunotherapy? So you're asking a, a tough question, and, and I, I think right now the only immunotherapy that's really been studied um, and used in prior practice is oral immunotherapy uh, for foods. Sublingual is still being investigated, and there are some other products, I think, coming out related to that. But uh, the oral immunotherapy has been used in private practice uh, groups of private allergists in addition to the studies that have been done at clinical uh, academic centers. Um, that's the closest being used. I think um, there are other centers, academic centers that are doing it as well. And we've discussed it, you know, at our center when we want to do that. Um, I think the hard part for me when I look at the therapy is there's a lot of things we just don't know. Um, long term, how long do patients have to be on the therapy? Um, what happens if you stop it? Um, there's just that there's, when you look at the trials that have been done and the, the practice groups that have been doing it, there's not a lot of data compared to using allergy shots where you've got millions of patients that have used it. So while I'm excited that these therapies are there and, and there are options for immunotherapy at uh, certain centers across the country, for us, it's how do you, uh, for example, charge patients for that? We want the proper codes to be billing these patients. And there are many patients, unfortunately, paying out-of-pocket large sums of money to get this done, and if you can't afford that, is it fair to have those therapies not available for everyone? And that's one of the reasons we have not decided to start therapy yet until we can make it available for everyone. However, we're not in a rush to put every single patient on, on therapy. I know many families have been waiting for these therapies uh, for many years, but I think we have to be careful. There may be patients that ongoing avoidance is the best choice. For example, adolescents and adults that have been avoiding peanut for years, many years or decades, to take something every single day, it may be easier for them to just to continue to avoid those foods and carry up an effort and then be compliant with a the therapy that you have to take every single day. And that's the case with any of these products right now. 
is if you know you have to have constant exposure to the allergen if you stop the therapy then your whatever benefit or desensitization uh, that you've gained can go away so again while i'm excited about these therapies i think we have to have really good conversations with the patients and the parents and the families about what their goals are can we achieve those goals can we answer some of the questions that they want before starting a therapy uh, at that at this time well, you know, you hit upon it again. It sounds like that this really is just such a highly individualized and nuanced um, diagnosis to live with, uh, with so many different variables that go into the diagnosis and management, and now with the evolving field of um, food immunotherapy. Sure. I mean, it's not for everyone. I think you know, it's not for every practice to do it either. I think you really have to be prepared to uh, answer a lot of questions and phone calls, um, to be your office prepared to bring in a lot of patients every couple of weeks, potentially for OIT, to be able to do the food challenges um, because you're, at some point you have to show if the therapy is working. And we know many allergists don't do even just the clinical challenges when we're treating, seeing if patients outgrow it. So there's a lot of things that we're working on uh, and working on some guidance with the college, American College and American Academy for our providers and parents and families about how to use these therapies. And I think an important point too is these are not to be done at home by yourself. So you should not be exposing your child to small amounts of increasing whatever food protein at home. These are dangerous things uh, that can happen. The anaphylactic reactions do happen with these uh, treatments and they really need to be managed uh, with someone who, who's experienced with food allergy. Oh, thank you for mentioning that. And um, I'll clarify for our listeners that what Dr. Fleisch is referring to is anybody with a known or existing food allergy that they should not be doing this at home. This is very different than our recommendations to feed allergenic foods to infants and other people. Correct. That's the early introduction of and trying to prevent food allergies, such as with peanut, is very different than treating a patient with known peanut or other food allergy. Now, you mentioned guidance, which I think is going to be crucial moving forward. Um, what do you think is the most important thing for patients and providers um, that they need to understand in regard to food immunotherapy? I think that everyone needs to know what they're getting getting into. Again, being clear with whatever treatment we're talking about, OIT, oral, the sublingual, or epicutaneous, what are the risks and benefits of doing any of those therapies or not doing any therapy at all? What are the advantages and disadvantages when it comes to convenience of doing the therapy? Again, balancing it with safety and efficacy. So when we enter patients into our clinical trials, we're very upfront and clear about exactly what using the therapy means, uh, how you have to be compliant with it, what tests you're going to need to get done to see if it's working, uh, food challenges at some point to see if it's working. Um, and that you're still going to have to carry epinephrine, you're still going to have to have antihistamines available, you're still going to have to read labels uh, for products. This is just more when they're going for approval from the FDA, it's for desensitization, meaning that being on the therapy, you can eat more of whatever food you're allergic to after being on the therapy for a certain amount of time. It's not a cure. It's not to get rid of the food allergy, at least at this point. Again, we don't know the long-term outcomes of these therapies. Can some patients outgrow it or become truly tolerant with these therapies? Yes, I, I think they can. Um, for me, when I look at the therapies, 
I, I see them, at least for milk and egg and, and possibly peanut, we know they work better the younger the patients are. So if we can start patients when they're diagnosed uh, with uh, food allergy, so as you mentioned with peanut allergy, if you fail introduction early, can we put those patients on therapy early and have them outgrow it maybe, maybe by four to six years of age compared to adolescents and adults with peanut allergy that have long-standing allergy that may never outgrow it and avoidance may be the choice. But again, it's you know we, clear conversations about what the goals are, making sure they align with the provider, the patient, and the family because sometimes the patients don't want to do the therapies. Um, it's the parents want that protection level, but the kids aren't going to be compliant with it. Um, for example, when they go away to college after being on therapy, so it's there's a lot to discuss, but it still means also that you've got to have the same precaution and concern about avoiding foods and reading labels and having epinephrine. It is kind of an insurance policy, hopefully, but again, you can't, you shouldn't be increasing your risk just because you're on a therapy. Now, I'm going to take advantage of having somebody with your expertise in both seeing patients with food allergy and all of your extensive clinical research in this realm. So if you could get your crystal ball out for us, what major changes or paradigm shifts do you foresee or would like to see in the, food of food aller in the field of food allergy over the next 20 or even 30 years? Nice, easy question. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I think to start with um, treatment, I think, you know, when we look back, you and I are not that different in age. When we look back, you know, to our training, I don't think we thought that there would be treatments available. Uh, and they're really on the cusp of, of having two FDA approved products. There will be more uh immunotherapy products coming as well going into investigation. I think this is just the first wave and I think it's very exciting, but what I've seen, and I can't talk about all those, but what I'm seeing, there's there's a lot of uh, pretty cool things and things that may work better, and things that may treat multiple foods at once, and things like that that are coming down, uh, coming down the pike per se. So I think the next 20 to 30 years for treatment is going to be very exciting. We're going to have to obviously study these different products, and we're going to have to collect the patients that go on these clinically because, uh, again, these products may be approved with much smaller numbers than we're used to. So we're going to need a lot of longitudinal overtime data to determine how these therapies really work. But I think right now is a very exciting time when we talk about treatment per se. I think the other part that you know I've been involved with um, is the prevention side of things. So early introduction of peanut will certainly hopefully decrease, you know, some cases of peanut allergy from developing, but there's so many things that we have not um, looked at. So one of the investigators at our center here is looking at uh, not postnatal, but actually prenatal and, and utero factors that may, so when moms are pregnant, what maternal factors can we see that may prevent some of uh, food allergies? Uh, we don't really know exactly why patients develop them and why they outgrow them. So the amount of research that hopefully will go into prevention and figuring out what those factors are, I think will be very exciting over the next 20, 30 years as, as well. Um, but I think it's it's a fun time for you and me and other uh, investigators at this point because there's so much more that we need to learn with respect to food allergy that we've certainly gotten very far in the last 30, 40 years. But the next 20, 30 years, uh, I think, are going to be very exciting uh, and uh, keep us very busy and, and and fun with, you know, trying to help patients uh, with food allergy 
not just preventing cases, but also treating them. Well, you know, I myself and uh, everybody listening sure hopes that you're you're on the right track there, and I'm I'm sure we are heading that direction. And I look forward to having you back on the podcast in 20 years, where I can ask you the same question and uh, look back and see what your response was now and reflect a little bit. So thank you for that. Put, put stuff in a time capsule and see where we are. There you yeah. go. Yeah. Uh, well, Dr. Fleischer, thank you again for taking the time to be with us today. I I, I could talk to you for three hours uh, or three days regarding this these fascinating um, concepts that you introduced and and the discussion that we had. This really was a great conversation. I I appreciate that. It's, it's it is fun talking about this. It's you know food allergies is a passion that we both have, and I think you know the impact that we can make on that you're making and they're all making in this this field is is, is enormous. So. And, and your passion comes through, so thank you. Uh, before we depart, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, again, I think you know when it comes to food allergy, if you know if you really think your child or patient has had something going back to diagnosis before taking a lot of foods or doing a lot of testing, come see us. Again, uh, thinking about immunotherapy, it's it's a conversation that really needs to be had, and it's not a short conversation. There are patients that avoidance should be an option as well. Um, but again, finally, that this is an exciting time. Uh, we're really at the forefront of learning things, and uh, it's going to be an exciting time. So Great. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through iTunes or Google Play so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you all for listening.